0: Hello and welcome to Should I Stay or Should I Go, the podcast providing you with expert career insight and advice from senior people in the fields of insurance and risk management to help you make the right career decisions. Hosted by founder and managing partner of Key Strategies LLC, Mike Tenenbaum. Featuring interviews with those at the top of their game, each podcast explores topical issues, coupled with specialist guidance on making your next move in the corporate risk management, insurance brokerage, and the insurance carrier sectors. A seasoned recruiter, Mike Tenenbaum has over 30 years of experience in sourcing top insurance and risk management talent for world-class Fortune 500 companies throughout the US. This experience makes your host the perfect person to kickstart the conversations that will give you the wisdom you need to decide, should I stay or should I go?
1: I am joined today by uh, Randy Nornis, who is the senior partner for the enterprise client group at Aon? Randy, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here.
1: Well, glad to have you. And uh, you know, you and I have known each other for for a bit. And you know, I have always thought of you as a uh, forward-thinking ERM-focused kind of a, a leader in the business. And uh, it looks like your career has taken you down a couple different paths. So I'd just like to uh, learn a little bit more about how you got into the business.
2: Yeah, well, it's, you know, probably everyone has an interesting story. My introduction to the business actually came through a practice interview in college. I was graduating as an undergraduate business degree from University of Minnesota. And one of the organizations that showed up on campus was Chubb, the insurance company. And I thought I was going to be a banker. And I had, you know, been been planning to interview with banks. I interviewed with a guy from Chubb never considered it before. I thought it was fascinating. And then ended up going on to the interview with banks as well. And I ended up ha- having a choice between taking uh, a trainee in a commercial banking uh, program, an analyst position for a uh, an investment banking firm, or this underwriting position at Chubb. And for w- something really intrigued me about, you know, Chubb as an organization. And just the range of things that you could touch when you entered that business. So so I ended up taking the Chubb role uh, and that kind of launched the whole uh, career trajectory to where I'm at today.
1: So that's really interesting because, you know, the insurance business competes with the uh, investment banking and, and financial business. And they're constantly trying to recruit the same people I find these days, especially. I'd like to maybe go a little bit deeper on that. So, you know, because a lot of people who I mean, and you have a, a degree in finance, do you? And was this yep. was this um, when you were coming out of your graduate school?
2: This was actually undergraduate. This was
1: undergraduate. Okay, so yep. so yeah, so especially uh, in those days, it's probably pretty unusual to see people who had you know offers from both sectors go the insurance route. So that was uh, that was mighty uh, fortuitous of you to pick the insurance business, I think.
2: Yeah, I had some good advisors. So one of my advisors in college was actually on the Federal Reserve Board. And he what he told me, this would have been back in the mid 80s, he said, you know, banking's great, but it's about to hit a very tumultuous, you know, decade or more. And you're going to come into the business at the very low end of the, the scale, and you're going to see consolidation, mergers, and it it's going to be very unsettled so he he recommended staying away from banking so that was why i i steered away from the banking sector and he turned out to be like exactly right you, know, you think about how many mergers took place between 1985 and 1995 in the banking business yeah you know, that's what created all the giant banks of today but there's a lot of a lot of carnage in between so yes
1: yes well there's a lot of turmoil certainly today as well and i wonder how that compares you know the turmoil that you, you know uh you were advised about versus the turmoil that we're in right now
2: yeah no i think it's just a different kind of turmoil it just comes around and and but it has the same impact
1: yeah so i think you know prior to let's say this year you know the the prospects were really really strong for the insurance business you know i've talked about it myself many many times about how you have kind of a changing of the guard going on and you know, baby boomers are retiring, and and lots of open positions. I mean, in the in the many thousands of open positions, and and not enough people coming into the field. So it seemed like you know it was a, a tremendous time to get into the insurance business. And then you fast forward to this year, and you have COVID, and and the next thing you know, we're in a major turmoil. And I'm just I'm curious how uh, how we're going to come out of that, and what the what the field is going to look like. Maybe a little bit smaller, or, or maybe not. Any thoughts there?
2: Yeah, I, I think the, well, the between retirements, you know, which are going to be substantial over the next, you know, five or ten years, and the changing nature of business in general, but in, in, uh, specifically, you know, the insurance industry. I think it's going to be really interesting. You're, you're going to see. Uh, if you think of the digital transformation that's taking place in across the whole insurance business now, it's very similar to, to a lot of other businesses. The competition is is not so much other insurance industry companies. It's really, you know, everything from data scientists to people who do coding, people who actually can run big data centers. So the competition is definitely changing for talent but i think that it also means the opportunities and the skill sets are going to become even more diverse coming into the business.
1: Yeah, i definitely would agree with that and you know you you touched on an interesting point, you know, with the data scientists and coding and such. So, you know, insurance is now not going to just be competing with the financial sector and the banking sector, but now they're also going to be competing with the tech sector, which is going to be interesting. And I, I don't think people typically would think of insurance as a as a tech kind of a business but it certainly seems like it's becoming one.
2: Yeah, and I think the tools are there, I mean, to really transform the business. If you think about just the user experience as a customer, think of retail, how much change the retail environment's gone through in the last five years, and sort of the user experience, customer expectations, that's now transferring over to other industries, including the insurance industry. So people have an expectation of how they want to be served, how they want to access information, how they want to basically interact with organizations. So the consumer is actually going to pull this process. It's not, I think it's less about industries sort of leading. I think there's probably a little bit of both, but I think consumers and consumer preferences are going to drive that, you know, and, and I think you've seen like the IPO with Lemonade and the you know capital raise with Hippo on the consumer side of how people are gravitating toward different Customer experiences in the insurance space, and so we just have to be able to staff for that.
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a very good point. While you were speaking, I was actually thinking about Lemonade as a great example of that. And Lemonade is is going to be an interesting story. See how it develops. But you know, they've they've made quite a name for themselves, and and they have an interesting product. I don't know if you you know if you had a chance to look at it, but you know, the whole concept of being completely paperless and you know buying insurance with your phone. And interacting completely virtually is very interesting, and I, and I suppose cost effective too. So we'll see how that goes. Maybe we'll uh, we'll come back into you know uh, the evolution of of the skill sets in a couple of minutes. I wanted to get back to your background. So you know you started at Chubb. What was uh, what was your first job like?
2: Uh, my first job was, you know, kind of a trainee underwriter in the executive protection area, which was the the early stages of the DNO business, and you know, working within the large organization, Chubb, working in that team, and so it was one of the times in my life where I had really had a chance to work with, you know, people who were kind of at the peak of their kind of career and had so much to offer in terms of just the wisdom and so that was one of my early lessons is i mean you always want to attach yourself to people who you can learn from and so i learned in just under three years i had a crash course in the dno business and it was at a time when you know people say the market's hard today it was by far the hardest market ever and since that time was in the time i joined the industry so i learned a lot because the demand was huge and the supply was small and you know, we all had to step up. So it was it was really a fascinating time.
1: Yeah, that that must have been a very interesting time to join the industry. And, you know, I guess I just find myself thinking about, you know, when you have a hard market, if you're a risk manager dealing with this hard market, you can imagine that, you know, especially uh, today, I don't know what it was like then, but when you look at the market today with the kinds of increases in, in costs for the same coverage or less coverage, uh, and having having to go back and tell your senior management what 's going on, that must be a very difficult conversation to have, and I'm sure they rely on on their uh, their brokers to help them with that conversation
2: yeah i mean at at that time, I was you know twenty three or twenty four years old, and I was literally standing in front of Fortune Five hundred boards explaining why their insurance costs were up five hundred percent seven hundred percent and they're just, wow. that was just that was just the way it was so it it was this huge inflection point and And, if you go back to that period, I mean shortly thereafter that was the birth of ace that was the birth of x l you know a lot of the big companies that are around today were basically formed directly after that uh that tremendously you know tumultuous period
1: unbelievable unbelievable so so you did that for a while and and I guess you know as a twenty three year old you know making those kinds of presentations, that must have given you some really great insight into the corporate sector and and what people are challenged with at the C-suite.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, going back and thinking about my education, one of the things that I've continued to rely on is the ability to to run a case study. You know, so if anyone's been through business school, sort of a core element is really running case studies, understanding a business, understanding the financials. That was a big part of how you would interact with organizations and how, how you would underwrite them. And so I that's still a skill set that I use every day today you know and that's 30 plus years later. So I, I can't say enough about sort of the case study method and really understanding the organization you're interacting with and and how that drives the behavior of the people in that organization you know what matters to them?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great, great point. And, uh, it's one that we've talked about a number of times on the podcast of, you know, really understanding the business that you're dealing with and being able to think more strategically about, about the risk. So it sounds like you got yourself a great start to your career there.
2: Yeah. Uh, hats off to my Minnesota Gophers and, uh, and my <laughs> under, undergraduate education.
1: Well, that's great. That's great. So what did you do from there?
2: So I was actually getting ready to make a move with Chubb to another location. And I got a phone call from the guy at the time, Al Diamond, was running the local office for Frank B. Hall, which was a predecessor to Aon. And Al said, hey, I want to talk to you about your career. And so literally, I'm I'm standing at a phone booth, you know, where you had to dial like Twenty numbers to get your phone card to work. Talking to Al, and so I, before I finalized the move, I went to see him, and he convinced me to uh, to join the brokerage business and build a DNO team inside Frank B. Hall. So that uh, so I made the jump there, and that was you know that was something that there weren't really national teams at the time. You know, people were kind of generalists back in the back in the late eighties. We actually started you know, one of the first DNO teams, and we focused on financial institutions and utilities. And so, uh, so that's, that's what I came over and did, and that's where I started.
1: Wow. So I'm curious, when you, you were thinking about that move and you, know, you knew what you were about to do at Chubb, and that, now you've got this other offer in your hand there, was, was it a little nerve-wracking you know, joining a kind of a startup situation, even though Frank B. Hall was not a startup, but the, but the group was?
2: Um, it wasn't really, no, I wouldn't say as much that I think it was, you know, back to sort of following a leader that you can learn something from, you know, for those uh, that know Al, you know, I learned so much from him and he was, you know, one of the great leaders. He went on to become president of, uh, of Aon before, before he retired. So, you know, he was really, really a great leader and I learned a lot. So I, I didn't, and at that point, I mean, you know, when you're young, you have options galore, so it just seemed like let, let's try this and and see if this works out, and it was good. It was it was kind of interesting because I this would have been late '80s, um, the year after I started this. Well, first as a little factoid, um, my first day at Frank B. Hall was the same day that uh, Saul Steinberg came in and you know bought a controlling interest. So we both had the same start date at, oh, uh, wow. at Frank B. Hall. So I got to meet him actually in the early days. So it was back when there were a lot of different uh, brokers and uh, it was a very different time.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure. That must've been an interesting first day, that's for sure.
2: Yeah, so within a year though, after I joined, Saul Steinberg brought over Joe Morhan and a team of people to build out what's, you know, today the financial services group at, at Aon. And so I worked closely with Joe, who was another kind of influential person in my career. And again, he was kind of legendary in the space, kind of moved the world of D&O to a whole nother level. And so I worked with him for probably another four or five years after that.
1: So you had the good fortune to work with some
2: really great people. Yeah. I mean, legends, legends of the business. That's, uh, I mean,
1: an opportunity that not everybody gets that.
2: And then Frank B. Hall ended up getting acquired by Aon in the early 90s. And that's how I got to meet Pat Ryan, who was uh, one of my other big influences.
1: Wow. That's, that's three legends. That's right. While not everyone gets a chance to work for such amazing people, it does raise the point that who you work for makes a huge difference or can make a huge difference in your career trajectory. And I think that not everyone pays enough attention to that when they think about the, the changes that they're contemplating making or not making you're a, a prime example of someone who has probably benefited greatly by the you know from the people that you worked for and obviously a lot of hard work along the way but to be in a position to be mentored by such people is really tremendous
2: yeah and I, I tell people today you know don't be afraid of lateral moves because in my career I made a lot of moves that were you know not necessarily vertical they were lateral to learn a completely different skill set to you know p- p- learn a different business completely. And so I think, you know, as I've as I've been able to kind of reinvent myself over the years, I think the learning that takes place from those lateral moves is really invaluable.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Sometimes people, you know, get stuck on, you know, they want to make money and they uh, and they they chase the dollars. And that's not always, you know, advantageous for them. In fact, I always tell people, really, at any stage, that they kind of have to put the money on the side and really focus on the career opportunity, and what that does, what the particular move can do for their career, you know, short term and long term. And you know, if if they're successful, the money will the money will come. Wouldn't you say?
2: Oh, I totally agree with that. Whether you're moving from organization to organization or just taking different opportunities within the same organization. Yeah, I, I think the money takes care of itself. Obviously, I think if there's riskier scenarios, you know, if you went to a startup, I'd probably want to make sure the upside was more than, uh, you know, a more stable environment. But yeah, it just matter, I guess it matters what, uh, what motivates you at any particular time. Yeah,
1: I mean, obviously, everyone has different things that are driving them, you know, on, on your way up in your career. If you're trying to provide for a young family, you know, money is going to be very important sometimes it becomes a quality of life thing. I mean, even when you look at the situation we're all in today, quality of life is a very different thing. Because, you know, there was a time I, I would get these phone calls regularly where people would say, you know, I, I really would like to work from home a day or two a week. To They'd like to be kept in mind for opportunities like that. And now they're working from home five days a week. And, and sometimes I'm getting the calls saying, you know, I, I, I can't wait to get back to the office. I still wouldn't mind working from home once in a while, but office life seems a very uh, attractive option again. So, you know, I guess things ebb and flow depending on people's situations. So, Randy, you, um, you went from the uh, executive protection, DO area, and somewhere along the way, you transitioned into enterprise risk. And I was curious how that happened.
2: Yeah. So again, one of the one of the things you learn dealing with organizations is you know especially in this sort of case study underwriting dno is you see the the impact of the business and how these unexpected things can occur and they always occur but how some organizations were more resilient than others so some just were able to pivot and be fine and some would basically be driven out of business or driven into the arms of a of a merger right and so back in the mid 90s there started to be kind of this discussion of enterprise wide risk management Arthur Anderson and a, a few firms started to sort of write white papers on it and i looked at that and said that's really interesting and we're in the risk business and we have all the tools we should think about sort of meeting the needs of clients and helping them through it and remember there this was a period where there were no frameworks it was just sort of an aspiration and a bunch of white papers And so in January of 1999, I launched that part of the business and we started to do work in enterprise risk and and build a team around that.
1: Interesting. So you know, when you say you launched that business, maybe you could talk for a moment about what it took for you to get that off the ground and and even to get that approved. Because when I think about what it takes even to get somebody hired, let alone start a new business, it must have been uh, a few uh, discussions internally.
2: It was actually, I would say, one discussion, you know, so it was a discussion with Pat Ryan and Michael Halloran, who were running Aon at the time, and laid out kind of the vision of, you know, why this made sense and, and, you know, how it would come together, and what we would need to do and how we would need to organize. And it was about 90 minutes. And so I walked out of the meeting and it was, it, I, I now had a different role. I mean, it was, and, and that, that's how it all started. And then we recruited, we had people internally. We had some, the quantitative people were already internal. We brought in some folks outside. So I know Ward Ching, who you know, and there were a team of people that came over that came with Ward and uh, a couple of people from E&Y. So we built a a beginning team which, you know, I think they're still scattered throughout the industry and some have gone on to be chief risk officers and some continue to do consulting.
1: That's great. But that's, I want to just say, you know, while you make that sound so simple and easy, you know, to have a 90 minute meeting where you laid out everything that you just described had to be a a lot of forethought and and planning on your part to walk in and, and have everything outlined, start to finish in that way. And I'm I just wanted to highlight that for a moment because I think that a lot of people have good ideas about new business opportunities, products, what have you. And a, they don't always get the chance to do what you had the chance to do. You had the right audience. I think that you know, should not be uh, could not be overstated because that's key. But B, you know, you had the foresight to really prepare yourself for that discussion so that it only took that one meeting. But I will say, you know, most senior leaders would require, you know, a whole group of meetings and analysis to launch a new business like that. So uh, kudos to you and uh, and and to Pat Ryan for making that happen. And you also—it sounds like you brought in a, a, a real A team to also make that happen, which is great. So how is it received when you're you're pitching this idea now? Because you're doing ERM consulting now with this business, correct?
2: Correct. Yeah.
1: And so this is this is a new concept at that point.
2: Yeah, it was a new concept, and you know I think that we we ran it again. We were fortunate because it was already you know AM is already a large organization. It was uh, had a lot of resources, had a had a skill set. You know, think about working with insurance companies, um, doing reinsurance and all the modeling that went with it. Um, so so we had a lot of tools at our disposal, and I think you know we made the choice to go down a quantitative path. And I think it was accelerated by the by the collapse of, you know, the Enrons and a, a bunch of different, uh, you know, companies. So it it sort of accelerated the interest in in ERM. You know, when we started in '99, I would say virtually all the clients we worked with were either companies that had train wrecked because of an issue, and were looking to kind of rebuild something to start over and be more resilient, or they were competitors of. Of companies that had had issues and they wanted to sort of insulate themselves just in case that they were vulnerable as well. So I would say it wasn't sustainable for the organizations. They were kind of like, I would say, one off projects. And then a few years later, you know, you started to see COSO and some frameworks come into the picture. And at that point, I think ERM shifted over to more of an internal audit role, it became less quantitative. And, you know, our business then shifted in a different direction. But, you know, so ERM in, in the last, you know, 15 years or so has gone through, you know, a lot of different tracks. It's now for the last probably two years, especially, has come back to be very, very focused on quantitative, very, very focused on, you know, getting at value, um, trying to focus in on what matters, you know, what, or what problem you're trying to solve for. So there's a lot more demand. Back on the quantitative side.
1: Yeah, I would say what I'm seeing as well is that, you know, there's less of a tolerance for these long drawn out studies and more interest in, you know, as you said, very practical, you know, what's the problem we're trying to solve for? You know, how do we make an impact quickly with this? And I think that because of that, you know, just about every job I work on now at the number one level in risk management, at least, there is a component of strategy. And ERM, but I see probably less formal ERM requirements in these descriptions and more about you know people who can be strategic and who understand ERM and uh, you know and I guess I, w- I would ask you then if, if there's a shift to more of the quantitative aspect of ERM again, how then does that change the skill set needed, do you think, to be a leader of risk management in a major
2: organization? So I, I think there's two things. One is, from a structure standpoint, every risk management department of any size should have some quantitative leader, an analyst, or someone that's very well-versed in quantitative methods. They may not have to be an actuary, but they should be able to interpret and understand results and be able to translate. So that's number one. And number two is, I think you know humans are horrible at assessing tail risk. You know, we we kind of like wake up every day and assume it's going to be like the day before. And so any of these things that are sort of outside the realm of just your normal day get pushed out somewhere into into either never going to happen or super rare, right? Pandemic is a great example. If you, just for fun, if you want to go and pull the 10K disclosures for, you know, organizations that were in the um, hospitality space, you know, whether you're talking hotels, cruise lines, entertainment, and look for pandemic on their top 10 list or their list of disclosures. And I would say you won't find a single one, you know, even the World Economic Forum has had pandemic on the list, but it wasn't near the top, right? So trying to imagine and quantify, not the likelihood, because that's where people get hung up, it's really the impact right? So if this does occur, you know, what does that do to the business? How do we think about that from a liquidity standpoint? What can we do to differentiate and become more resilient around the issue? So it's really the strategies that that quantitative view helps you think through is like, can I survive that? You know, what resources am I going to need? And I think it's just the pandemic we're living through now is a good lesson of why that's valuable, It's not that it's likely, it's just that if it happens, it requires some thinking.
1: I'm recalling some conversations I've had with CFOs and and senior risk leaders about this exact topic of, you know, there's severity versus probability. Given the the short-term focus that many organizations have had in the past, you know, public companies especially, they seem to be managing sometimes quarter to quarter. And, and you take something like, you know, before, obviously before COVID, you know, pandemic issues and things like that, that seemed very, very remote and unlikely, they really got very little attention. And, you know, what I was hearing from my clients is that, you know, they really couldn't focus on things like that. And they had to really stay in the short term with respect to their, uh, their activities. And uh, now this pandemic, like you were saying, I think has has kind of brought people's thinking, you know, full circle on that. And you you sort of have to imagine the unimaginable and make sure that you're prepared for that, which is which is kind of tough and it goes against that that quarter to quarter kind of focus, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, and just, you know, even before pandemic we had, you know, ransomware attacks that were on incredibly large scale, you know, some of which ended up taking down management teams. So, you know, the first casualty often is not the, the company itself it's the management team that happened to be running it at the time so it, it becomes very personal and you know I think starting and you're seeing this really start to happen at scale now is organizations are uh, attempting to quantify and understand kind of what are the dimensions look like and you know what I what I tell people is you know risk is a loaded word and if you ask 20 people on a board, uh, tell me what risk means. You'll get twenty different answers, but I, I think, I think if we start to think about what we do for a living is managing the distance between certain and uncertain, that becomes a lot clearer because everyone understands what that means. And so, for a risk like you know pandemic or anything else, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty there, and so the distance is actually quite large because we just don't know enough. And there's a lot of risks that have that characteristic. But I kind of want to know what's the shape of that curve. How does it relate to our business? What investments could I make? How should I think about you know my, the capital requirements of the business, and start to think through scenarios. You know, and insurance is a small aspect of that. I mean, it's it's really the total strategy of how you're going to do it. And some of it's operational, some of it's you know just financial liquidity. And I think that opens up a lot of possibilities. And, you know, I think pandemic has sort of unleashed that now and it's happening at scale.
1: Yeah, no, um, that's a really great point. You know, that distance between certainty and uncertainty is uh, certainly, I think, right now, at least, the reality of that and what, what that could look like makes that whole thought process real. So that's a great point. So... The only other thing I really wanted to get into, because, I mean, we could really go in so many different directions with this conversation, but when uh, when you look at the state of affairs right now, given what you've just described, how do you see risk management changing in the future? Do you think it's going to continue, I suppose, going in more of a quantitative direction? What's What's the risk manager of the future going to look like?
2: I think you're starting to see some of this happen now, but the risk management roles, I think they've always aspired to be, you know, part of the executive team, part of the strategic outlook of the business. I think now that's happening more and more where you're seeing people come into risk management from a diverse background, but you're also seeing organizations recognize the value so you're seeing people, you know, pulled up to a different level. And I know that's true some of the open spots that are being recruited they're using executive recruiters that are you know reaching far and wide to get the right background it's less of a line function and it's becoming more of a core strategic function so uh, from a career standpoint you know someone coming into the business now you know i think you're going to want to have a the technical grounding but you know it's less about like the products and solutions it's more about being able to run the play which is uh, you know understanding the risks of the business, being able to understand how to quantify those, interpret those, focus on problems that actually need solving, pro- focusing on things that matter, and really being you know, kind of an influential member of an executive team. And so I, I think that's the future.
1: And do you see then that there, there will be more chief risk officer positions created?
2: Yeah, I think definitely you'll see more chief risk officers. I mean, you obviously saw them initially where there was a regulatory uh, angle and it became a, a point of focus, but you're seeing it now branch out away from regulatory, I think for the reasons I just described. And that puts them, you know, if, it, it may be a direct report into a CEO, it may be a dotted line into a board, it may be, you know, maybe CFO, but it's definitely a higher level. But it's trying to connect the dots. I mean, most organizations spend a lot of resources on risk management, but it's it's uh, it's distributed. So you might have someone managing the supply chains. You might have someone managing some of the personnel and people risks, but they're not connected. And I think that's where the board struggle is. They're getting information coming from different sources, but it's not it's not digested. And so you need someone to. Ca- kind of work across the organization, and so both internally and then look outside for examples and really try to connect the dots for the management team and the board. So I think that's why the CRO role is now really coming into its own.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, as you were describing that process with, you know, all the different data points, to me, I've always thought of ERM as sort of the, you know, the landing place for all of that information. So, you know, you have someone at the at the C level or the, the senior director level or VP level, if you will, who is collecting all that information and putting together a nice tidy report to keep senior management informed so that, you know, they're making better risk-adjusted decisions. So, uh, so that, all, that all fits. So I think, you know, ERM maybe is part of the chief risk officer role, but, you know, I don't know if they're going to call it ERM in the future or not. I guess we'll have to see.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, that's the problem is I think the journey it's taken, um, some organizations will check the box and say, hey, we did that and it really didn't move the needle. So, you know, we need something else. So maybe that's what we had to come up with, Mike. We had to come up with a new new thing. You know, that could be uh, our swan song. Get royalties. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll work on that, Randy. And, uh <laughs> I look forward to that and uh, I think um, that about covers it for today. Uh, This has been a great conversation, loved hearing your insight and I thank you very much for your time.
2: Thanks, Mike. It's good talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to Should I Stay or Should I Go brought to you by Key Strategies LLC, the US insurance and risk management recruitment specialists. If you like the show, please be sure to subscribe, like and leave reviews every time you do it helps others find the show and if you have any specific career related questions please post them or send an email directly to mike at mtenenbaum at keystrategies.com he may even answer your question on the show when you subscribe you'll also get notifications of when the next episode is available hope you join us next time